Welcome to the Live Courageously podcast show. I'm your host, John Duffy, and this is the 53rd Live Courageously podcast show since I started the show about two years ago. Courage is resistance to fear, mastery of fear, not absence of fear. And today is a special show, a show I wish didn't need to exist. Um, It's a show dealing with the brutal, savage massacre of Israelis on October 7th by Hamas terrorists that some have called Israelis 9-11 but it's 15 times at least worse than that. And our guest today will give us a close-up and personal view of both the history and the reality of the present war in the Middle East. So let's meet today's courageous guest, Dan Gordon. Dan Gordon is an American-Israeli screenwriter conceived in Alberta, Canada, and that's the story there. And he's also a television writer, a television producer, television director, film producer, a novelist, a playwright, a film director, and a reserve duty captain in the Israeli Defense Force. As a screenwriter, he has written Wyatt Earp, Passenger 57, Murder in the First, The Hurricane, and Miracle in East Texas, where I met and worked with Dan as I line produced uh, the film in Alberta, Canada. It was there I got to know about some of the experiences Dan had with the IDF. And Dan has been a producer, screenwriter, and story editor of 200 hours of television, including Highway to Heaven, Highlander, and Soldier of Fortune, Inc. He's also written stage adaptations of terms Terms of Endearment and Rain Man and novels based on his screenplays, as well as his own experiences fighting in the Gaza War. In 1971, Gordon began directing the film Potluck based on a screenplay he had written. The film wasn't finished and he left to Israel where he joined the Israeli army in the early 1970s. He served for almost a decade during the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And after more than a decade, he returned to Hollywood to continue his screenwriting career in the early 80s. He served as an escort officer in the military spokespersons unit during the 2006 Israeli-Lebanon conflict. And he was a reserve duty captain in the Israeli Defense Forces Reserves when he was in his 70s in 2018. And normally the IDF makes you retire at 49. Amazing story. And that's, he shared some of that with me. So greetings, Dan. Um, Thank you. Uh, hold on one second. I said greetings, and now I got to bring him on. <laughs> there he is. Greetings, and w- welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for taking the time to, to join us. Thanks for having me, John. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. You know, like I said, this is a show I, I would have uh, preferred that we weren't uh, having to be talking about this, given that, um, you know, there's uh, other things that I would have loved to talk to you about, including filmmaking and our movie. But this reality is something you have a, a very deep understanding of. So maybe, uh, Dan, if you could start off and tell us the present situation, your, what happened on October 7th in Israel and you, how you see it and what it is and what do people really need to know? Because uh, unfortunately, I don't think people really know the truth about what is really going on. You know, on October 7th, it was around 10 o'clock at night, something like that, 10, 10.30, which would have been around 6.30 in Israel from where I live, which is central time zone. I was uh, WhatsApping with my adopted sister who lives in a kibbutz, which is a small farming village on the Gaza border, a little kibbutz called Saad. And I had sent her a holiday greeting because it was the Jewish holiday called Simchat Torah, which is the celebrate ending the reading of the Torah, which takes a year to do. And then they begin starting off in the same day, reading it again from, you know, the book of Genesis, the story of creation. 
And it was also Shabbat. It was the Sabbath. And every Shabbat, I always text or call my sister and wish her, as we say in Hebrew, Shabbat Shalom, which means Sabbath peace. Now, she's very religious. And because she's religious, she turns her phone off when Sabbath starts at sunset. So I didn't get a response and I didn't expect a response until the following evening, her time when the Sabbath would be over. And at 6.30 in the morning, roughly her time, I see I get a WhatsApp from her and I'm immediately concerned because she would never turn her phone on if it wasn't an emergency. So she had read my greeting, you know, happy holiday. And she said, yes, it's very, quote unquote, happy. They're firing rockets at us. Mm. Rockets are not a new thing where my sister lives. They're under rocket attack all the time. So I said, oh, you know, how, how many? And she said, a huge broad, much more than any time we've ever had before. And we stay texting back and forth. And then she said, her husband just stepped outside and he heard small arms fire. And I said, Sarah, if your husband hears small arms fire, your kibbutz has just been penetrated by terrorists. Get in the safe room, lock the doors. And she said, no, no. Uh, by that time, I'd actually called her and got on the line. She said, no, we're so close to the border that we can actually hear small arms fire and blah, blah. And I said, look, I know your kibbutz very well. And I was there in the 2014 war. I know what the acoustics are and how far away you can hear or not hear small arms fire. I said, if you can hear small arms fire, you've got terrorists in your kibbutz. Lock the doors. Does your husband have a weapon? She said, no. And one of my doors doesn't lock. And I'm there with my sister. And I, I know there are terrorists in her kibbutz. And I said, get in the safe room, barricade it. Don't make any noise. What? And then we we're texting back and forth for the next several hours. Finally, around 3.30 in the morning, my time, she says, go to sleep. It seems to be quieter now. Uh, and pray God I'll still be here in the morning. What neither of us knew was that terrorists had tried to get into her kibbutz. Because it's a religious kibbutz, they actually lock the gate on Sabbath so no one can drive in or drive out. The terrorists tried to get in through the pedestrian gate, so they were shooting the lock and trying to get in through the pedestrian gate. But when they saw they couldn't get in with their vehicles or their motorcycles and they wanted a quick getaway, they literally went across the street to the a kibbutz across the street, a place called Kfar Aza. And in Kfar Aza, they butchered. And the English language doesn't have a term for what they did there. They raped women, tortured them, killed women, children, babies, beheaded babies, old, pulled old people from their beds or their wheelchairs. They killed over 100 people there. And that scene was, we now know it was 2,000 terrorists who had infiltrated Israel all along the border. All the little farming villages in that area were affected all the way up. Uh, they had some in Ashkelon. They were in Sderot in a town called Ofakim where they wreaked havoc. And we now know that they killed 1,500. 1,500. And that's a new figure because they're still finding bodies. They just found two bodies today, both were children. One was an autistic girl that they had hoped had been taken uh, captive and they found her and her grandmother murdered together and they found the 
body of a boy who hid in the attic after they killed his mother and the terrorists went up into the attic and butchered the boy there. So it was 1,500 people that they murdered, wounded some 3,000 and kidnapped over 200 people who are now being held hostage in Gaza. And I just put up, this is just some pictures of some of the children who've been kidnapped to Gaza. Uh, I just put that on the screen. Yeah. Um, and at my gym today, people had put up these posters around the gym of people, and that's in Venice, California, of uh, people who've been kidnapped, you know, entire, uh, an, an entire family, yeah. a, a two-year-old girl, and this other woman, and that's just some of the pictures. But, but Dan, you know, for Americans who've never experienced this, I mean, you just casually kind of uh, mentioned, as you were talking with your sister, she said, you know, how used to, uh, having uh, missiles fired at them. It was like, well, that's just kind of commonplace. Where us, it's like an occasional firework on July 4th is a commonplace thing, right? Yeah. And, and how can you, you know, it's like that's normal living in, in that uh, uh, area for your sister. And as an American who so had never experienced it, you know, it's mind boggling. And then this, you know, what you're saying, describe this because besides all the people, the new numbers you said, the, I don't know. It's almost like we need a new word to describe the evil that just occurred. It's like another, we have to invent a word to describe it because it, it, it goes beyond what we've seen so far. And there's been a lot of evil over in that part of the world, but this kind of takes evil to another level. Yeah. I mean, tell me what your, your thoughts are on this. Yeah. I mean, I make my living as a writer and I was talking to my kids and I said, the, the English language is, is impoverished when it comes to, describing what happened. There is no word to describe what happened. Pogrom doesn't describe it. Slaughter, massacre doesn't describe it. There is not a word that can describe when mothers and children are bound together, when we know of one mother and infant that were bound together with wire and then set on fire while mm. all these guys watched. Uh, there was another instance of a family I believe in uh, Kibbutz Beeri, and the two parents were tied up on one side of the room and the children were tied up on the other side of the room and then they lit them both on fire so the children could watch their parents burn, the parents could watch their children being burned alive and the terrorists had set up a table in the middle and put food out so they could have a snack while they watched the family burn. I mean, that's, that's beyond ISIS. That's it. They somehow have managed to make the Nazis look humane by comparison. Um, I, I don't know the word. I don't know the word to describe that. Yeah, just do not. Uh, it doesn't exist. And it, for it, it, don't think that this was a mob that got out of hand. There were rational people who sat in a room with maps and said, this unit will go to this village and this unit will go to this village and here are your orders kill maim rape torture as many civilians as possible and we need to take around 200 hostages they didn't want to take more than that because then they get out of hand they're unruly they had the numbers that they wanted killed they had the numbers that they wanted taken hostage and thankfully in a lot of these the army failed completely and, but in a lot of these little villages, they have what they call in Hebrew, kitat kunanut, which means the uh, ready response team or the, 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 the uh, 
a squad that's on alert. And they're usually 10 to 15 guys, some of whom have combat experience in the army, some of whom don't. And these guys together with people who just had a weapon in their house, uh, in one kibbutz called Mifalsim, they killed all the terrorists and they didn't suffer any casualties themselves. Um, if it weren't for these small groups and they were outnumbered, there were 2000 terrorists, uh, there would have been a thousand more people at least killed. I mean, we, you know, we see stories like this is a story I just put up about this young woman who uh, I think was with the IDF and organized the people in her kibbutz to basically repel the Hamas attack, like you're saying, because it would have been a lot worse. But this is the kind of the bravery and the courage of the people who were able to fight back. But of course, they were taken by surprise. It wasn't a uh, expected fight. It was. It they didn't come. But you know what you're saying, Dan, too, is, and I, I just think people need to wrap their mind about it and their heart about it. This wasn't a mob. This wasn't in, in, in a fit of rage. This was a planned operation, and yep. and that you kind of got to understand on another level because mobs are mobs, and craziness happens among mobs, and evil happens among mobs, but. These are rational people who planned this evil and knew what they were going to do. And, and there wasn't one level of humanity in them at that mm -hmm. moment when they did. I don't think, you know, when I was in the military spokesperson unit, uh, my opposite was a guy and he's still the spokesperson for Hamas. His name was Abu Obeda. And he told some reporter he knew about me and I knew about him. He told some reporter, oh, the Israelis have hired a Hollywood screenwriter to write their fantasies. Anyway, so this reporter was interviewing Abu Obeda in Gaza. And he said, basically, he said, what, what's the difference between Hamas and ISIS? And Abu Obeda was very insulted. And he said, what, how dare you compare us to ISIS? And he said, well, you're, you're both the same, basically. He said, that's an absolute lie. That's scandalous. He said, ISIS kills civilians. And so he said, well, Hamas kills civilians. And Abu Obeda's answer was, that's not true. We never kill civilians. We only kill Jews. Not Israelis, Jews. It was a, they, it's not just a question of nationality here. This is Jew hatred, pure and simple, pure and simple. And, and that type of Jew hatred within the Arab world in which we had very good relations for a period of history, but that goes back to the seventh century. You're dealing with a seventh century fanatical mentality and it hasn't changed since the seventh century. I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm almost speechless at that, that comment. It's just, we don't kill civilians, we kill Jews. And we're not like ISIS. And, and, and clearly, whatever his perspective is, the reality is they are worse than ISIS and they just proved it. Um, and, you know, for us, we've seen ISIS in the past and we luckily they were able to be mostly uh, destroyed and taken out of Iraq and Syria by our government and our military. But this is another level. But, you know, um, like you said, it goes back to the seventh century. But take us, Dan, um, Take us a, a little bit back in history. Give us a history lesson, if you can, of with, maybe let's start with where Hamas started and where Gaza started, because not everybody understands how that came about, when it came about, 
how Hamas came about and, and who Hamas is. Um, take us through that little history lesson if you can. I actually have to back up a little bit before that because there's a real misconception about that part of the world, <clears throat> excuse me, which <clears throat> Hamas uh, <clears throat> and Hezbollah try to magnify. The notion that we have stole the Palestinians' land, start with that. Okay. There's never been in the history of the world any country called Palestine. It's never existed. It's never had borders. There is no money that was ever printed that said Palestine on it, no stamps that ever were printed that said Palestine on it. There was no president of any such entity country ever in the history of the world called Palestine. The area that is today, the Gaza Strip, Judea, Samaria, and Jordan, were all a province of the Ottoman Empire prior to World War I. And the Ottoman Empire stretched throughout the entire Middle East. <clears throat> Pardon me. In World War I, Jews had already begun returning to Israel, which is our ancestral homeland. And we were doing that because we were persecuted in, in the countries in which we found ourselves. And those countries weren't just Eastern Europe. Those were Arab countries as well. So Jews began returning in the late 1800s, and they began buying up land. Nobody ever stole any land. They paid exorbitant prices for absolutely worthless land, land that was desert or swamp land or completely barren. And small groups of Jews started to build farming villages, reclaim the land. And when World War I approached, the, there were already about 200,000 Jews roughly living in, in what was then that area of the world, of uh, that province of the Ottoman Empire. And Jerusalem, by the way, was a majority Jew Jewish city at that time. The Jews of, of that area decided that they would throw in with the Allies against the Ottoman Turks and the Germans because they believed that if the Allies, the democracies won, they would have a stake in the victory and they would be able to say, we deserve a country of our own. We helped you guys destroy the Ottoman Empire. So there were two fighting units of volunteers who fought in World War I. One was the Jewish Legion and the other was the Zion Mule Corps and they fought, fought at Gallipoli. But more than that, there was an extraordinarily intelligence operation called the Neely Group. And that intelligence group provided the intelligence to the Brits that enabled General Allenby to defeat the Ottoman Empire and go all the way from Sinai up through Syria and liberate Jerusalem along the way. And Allenby acknowledged that without the Neely, the Neely intelligence group, they would never have been able to do it. So after World War I, they had a conference called the San Remo Conference to divide up the old Ottoman Empire. And it was supposed to grant independence to the small indigenous peoples of that region. We were one of the indigenous peoples. We go back 3,000 years there. I mean, Jesus walked in Jerusalem. He didn't walk in Al-Quds. We were there 2,000 years before Muhammad's mother was ever born. Mm. So... Uh, they laid their claim at, at the League of Nations and the League of Nations said, yes, we agree the, that the Jews of that area deserve their own country. And they appointed Great Britain to administer what was called the Palestine Mandate. And Britain wanted to do it because it had oil interests in the Middle East and it wanted to hold on to them. So the first thing that Britain did 
was to lop off 70% of what was supposed to be our homeland and create what was called the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. There had never been such a country in the history of the world. They did that, their army was officered by British officers, and that way they could maintain their colonial hold over part of the Middle East. And they were also protecting an oil pipeline that went from Iraq to Haifa. And so during that period, as soon as it looked like we were gonna get a country of our own, the fanatical Palestinians, and by the way, no Arab at that time called himself a Palestinian. The only person who called themselves Palestinians were Jews. The Arabs called themselves Arabs. The, they were led by a guy who was the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem named Hajamin al-Husseini. And he started a massacre in uh, Jaffa and in Hebron, which Hebron is where Abraham is buried. That's the founder of our religion and his wife, Sarah, is buried there. It's called the, the Tomb of the Patriarchs. That's how far we go back in Hebron. They massacred the entire Jewish population of Hebron, wiped it out. They had lived there for 3,000 years. What year? What year was that then? That was in the 20s. I think it was 1927. Okay. And they did the same to the Jews of Jaffa. And then in 1930s, there was an, around 36, there was what they called the Arab Revolt, which the Brits wanted to put down again because they wanted to protect their pipeline. And in that Arab revolt, they were massacring Jews. At that point in time, the Brits said, well, maybe we ought to get out of this area. It's too violent for us. Everybody's fighting everybody and they're fighting us. And we, we got the mandate from the League of Nations in order to prepare a Jewish state. So they appointed Lord Peel to head up a commission called the Peel Commission. And they recommended a tiny state for Israel, which would have included from Tel Aviv in a six mile wide country up to the Valley of Jezreel, turn right and a little bit of the Galilee and the entire rest of the region they offered to the Arabs. The Jews said yes, because we knew that Hitler had come to power and the only place that would take in the Jews who needed to escape would have been us. And so we said, yes, any country of any size, the Arabs universally rejected it. The idea of a, a Jewish state the size of a postage stamp was not acceptable to them at all. So then in 39, the, uh, even earlier, I think 38, the Brits issued what they called the white paper to appease the Arabs, which they said no further Jewish immigration will be allowed to Palestine, to the Palestine mandate area. That effectively sealed the fate of six million Jews in Europe who went to the gas chambers and were slaughtered because there was no country on earth that was willing to take them in. The one country that would have would have been Israel and, and we didn't have a country. And the Brits in contravention of the League of Nations shut off immigration. So now that, that sort of Palestine Arab fanatical group after 1948, we declare independence, we're invaded on the day we declare independence by five armies, plus the local Arabs who lived in, in, um, amongst us. It was a year and a half long war. At the end of that war, the borders that you're showing on your map were established <clears throat> and Israel was an independent state. 600,000 roughly Palestinian Arabs fled from what was now Israel. They fled for two reasons. One, they wanted to get out of a war zone, and I understand that. 
And the other was their own leaders said, if you guys get out of the way so we can invade and finish the Jews off, when you will take us about two weeks and you can come in and take over their towns. So there were a lot who got out of the way who were very sympathetic to the people who wanted to kill us all. And they literally said, we're going to finish the job that Hitler began. It, was very, it wasn't just about territory, it was about wiping us out. At the same time, the 600,000 Palestinians left Israel, 800,000 Jews who had lived in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Morocco, all throughout the Arab countries were expelled. So literally there was a trade of populations. 800,000 Jews were kicked out of the Arab countries, 600,000 Jews left Israel and became Palestinian refugees. In any other conflict, that would have been the end of it. The weird thing that happened is the United Nations, which is not my favorite organization in the entire world, categorizes two groups of refugees on earth. One group is all the refugees on the face of the earth, except the Palestinians. They're under the aegis of the UN High Commissioner on Refugees. The other category of refugees are the Palestinians, and they're under what's called UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief Welfare Association. They're the only group of refugees in the world who are forever refugees. Doesn't matter what country they settle in, how prosperous they become, they and their descendants will always be refugees. Hmm. Haddad, the supermodel who makes around 20 million a year and is American, is according to the UN, a Palestinian refugee, homeless by the way, because wow. not in Israel. So, so this, this festering hatred, because they, the UN also educates them as well to say, yes, you're refugees, one day you'll be able to come back. Well, no, you can't come back. You want us to bring in 6 million people who want to slaughter us? You just saw what 2000 could do. Not gonna happen. The Muslim Brotherhood was born in the 30s in Egypt. And I just want to step back a bit on a personal level. <clears throat> You'll hear today that this is all about the occupation, settlements, the apartheid state. It's about Gaza and the West Bank and uh, Jerusalem. When I was a kid growing up in Israel in 1963, I left my kibbutz where I lived because I wanted to go to a young kibbutz. I was not an older kibbutz that was 40 years old and I wanted to be with you know young people. So I was gonna volunteer on a young kibbutz. It was a place called Nachaloz, right on the border with Gaza. That's the first place I was ever shot at in my life. That's where I, the first time anyone ever tried to kill me. Oh. And I was shot at for the crime of planting a palm tree and being Jewish. And then at that time, they called the terrorists who came out of Gaza, Fedayun. Well, seven years before I was shot at, there was a kid named Roy Rutberg, who was in 1956 in Nachaloz. He was shot, he was drugged into Gaza, he was tortured, and then finally he was shot again and killed. And his body was later returned to Israel by the UN in a swamp. Moshe Dayan, who was the chief of staff of the Israeli army at the time, gave his eulogy. This is written 67 years ago. Just listen to it and see if you can think that anything has changed. 
Early yesterday morning, Roe was murdered. The quiet of the spring morning dazzled him, and he did not see those waiting in ambush for him at the edge of the field. How did we shut our eyes and refuse to look squarely at our fate and see in all its brutality the destiny of our generation? Beyond that border, he was talking about Gaza, is a sea of hatred and revenge swelling, waiting the day when serenity will dull our path for the day when, they will, when we will heed the ambassadors of malevolent hypocrisy who call upon us to lay down our arms. Roe's blood is calling out to us and only us from his torn and shredded body. Although we swore a thousand times that our blood would not flow in vain, yesterday we were seduced. We listened. We believed. We will make a reckoning with ourselves today. For without the steel helmet and the cannon's barrel, we will never be able to plant a tree or build a home. Let us not be deterred from seeing the loathing that is inflaming and filling the lives of hundreds of thousands of Arabs who live around us and await the moment in which their hand will be able to attain our blood. Let us not avert our eyes, lest our arms weaken. This is the fate of our generation, to be prepared, to be armed, to be strong and determined, lest the sword be stricken from our hand and our lives be cut down. The young Roi who left Tel Aviv to build his home at the gates of Gaza to be a wall for us was blinded by the light in his heart and he did not see the flash of the sacrificial knife. The yearning for peace deafened his ears and he did not hear the voice of murder that was lying in ambush to kill him. What's changed in 67 years? And 67 years ago, there were no territories, no settlements, no occupation, no Jerusalem, none of that. All there was was a fanatical hatred of a non-Muslim Jewish state of any size in its ancestral homeland. That hatred has been fanned by Hamas, which is akin to ISIS, into the situation that we have today that's the hatred is the same. The only thing that's different is the size of the massacre. I mean, the, the words of that 67 years ago is so powerful, Dan. And, and you just think for a moment, I think for a moment, and you think of uh, all the young people at a, call it a rave or call it whatever, you know, a version of Burning Man over uh, you know, there, all these young people who had peace in their heart and it just, you know, did not expect that reality. And all they were doing was enjoying life and enjoying partying. And that reality came to them just like it came to him 67 years before. Um, it, it just echoes so powerful times so much. Um, thank you for sharing that. I think people just, you know, you, you got to almost listen to it a couple of times to absorb how powerful that reality, unfortunately, is um, today. Yeah, and I the, the the phrase that sticks out to me the most is saying the people who want to kill us are waiting for the day that we heed the advice of the ambassadors of the malevolent hypocrisy that calls on us to lay down our arms. On that day, we'll all be dead. Mm. 
And that's definitely that hypocrisy is is definitely existent in our time today, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. When you have- a, a quote, I think this. If I note, that's not the one. Um, if I can find it, um, and I may not even have the picture, but go to my air said a, a quote, and you probably know it by heart about the situation in the Middle East. Um, about there'll be peace when the Arabs and I, I don't exactly remember the thing, but maybe you do. There will be peace when the Arabs love their children more than they hate ours. Yeah. And Once again, a, a, a powerful, a powerful uh, statement uh, that has gone on for uh, way too long. You know, um, when, a, when a Hamas suicide bomber or terrorist is killed, if it's a suicide bomber, and they're killed blowing up Jews, or if it's a terrorist who's killed while trying to kill Jews, their parents are expected to hand out candy to all the neighbors to celebrate the fact that their child died as a quote unquote martyr. So if you raise your children with the idea of what you aspire to is to lose your life as long as you can take a Jew or two with you, how do you, how do you negotiate with that? You, the only thing you can negotiate is your own suicide. Well, last week I did a podcast with a, a good friend of mine who uh, is in Israel right now. And he had he had got injured. He was a tank commander when he was young and he's in a wheelchair. He got uh, injured in an accident in the tank and he's living over there now. And he was explaining to me and his words, uh, Ron Weinrich was just so powerful because he said, you know, how do you invite somebody to dinner or Shabbat or whatever it is? How do you invite them to sit down and enjoy dinner with you while the whole time they're sitting there, they're trying to figure out how to kill you at that dinner? How can you have a dinner with them? How can you have peace with people like that who are not coming to share with you what you're offering them um, as a gift and as a dinner, but they're coming to figure out how to kill you and kill everybody in that room? Um, how do you find a, a solution to that? with those kind of people. And that's who Hamas is, ISIS times yeah. times 10. And I'll, I'll tell you a story because I don't want to say all Palestinians have this kind of fanatical hatred. They don't. You know, I agree. Israel is, 20% of Israel's population is Israeli Arabs. 20% of our doctors in all of our hospitals are Israeli Arabs. Almost 90% of our pharmacists are Israeli Arabs. Wow. The, the relationships are, are excellent. And I, I remember in 2011, 12, when we went into Gaza, it was uh, Operation uh, Cast Lead. Maybe it was 2010. I'm getting, in, I've been in so many wars, and in, in, you know, I've been in six wars, so I get the dates mixed up sometimes. Wow. We went into a place called Alatatra, and I was attached to. Uh, an air, airborne uh, battalion, which was commanded at that time by the guy who today is the chief of staff, Herzi Alevi. And because I was or, older than anybody there, including much older than Herzi Alevi, I mean, you know, I'm, I was born in 47, there was a Palestinian farmer who saw my gray hair and assumed that I was the commander of, of this unit. And he's, he could speak Hebrew. He was of that generation that used to work in Israel and had good relations with the Israelis. And he came to me and he said in Hebrew, he said, Commander, he said, uh, why don't you go in there and kill them all? 
And I said, who am I supposed to kill? He said, Hamas. I said, what, what do you have against Hamas? Those are your guys. And he said, you see this field that we're standing in? I said, yeah. He said, this used to be my farm. He said, I grew the best sun sunflower seeds in the entire Middle East. People used to come from everywhere for my sunflower seeds. And I don't believe he was exaggerating because that area grows good sunflower seeds. He said, and then Hamas came in. They kicked me off my farm. They took my farm and today it grows rockets. He said, I can't feed my family rockets. He said, go in and kill them all. Now, he could say that to me. He couldn't say that to them because they'd kill him. So my heart goes out to the people who live in Gaza because I would say half of them, according to the latest polls, support Hamas, but half of them don't. And they're prisoners there and they live a miserable life. They, they I guarantee you, will not uh, be sad on the day when Hamas no longer rules them. I just want to kind of echo what you said on a couple of points right there, because one, like, you know, you said all the Palestinian people are not like that. And, and the listening of the Palestinian people and the Arab who are in Israel as pharmacists, as doctors, et cetera. And, and that there's, you know, that distinction between Palestinian people and Hamas is an important distinction to make. And when you look historically, you look at a situation like in Cambodia, where you had the Khmer Rouge, which was the rulers of the Cambodian people, and they killed millions of their own people. The Cambodian people were good people. The Khmer Rouge was a, uh, an evil entity that, that was destroying their own people as well as others. That's what Hamas is. The distinction between the Palestinians and Hamas is an important, important distinction. And, and evil is Hamas. The Palestinian people are the people. That's a different uh, reality. The same thing in Lebanon with Hezbollah. And what, what people here don't understand is that both Hamas and Hezbollah are puppets of Iran. Iran doesn't even share a border with us. We don't have a fight with Iran. We're a thousand miles away from Iran. They're Persians. They're not Arabs. And yet they want to dominate the Middle East. And so, and they have a fanatical, I'm talking about the Ayatollahs, not the people of Iran who are beautiful people. The, the Ayatollahs have a fanatical hatred of Israel because we're Jews. And they want to encircle us. They want to wipe us out. And then they want to dominate the Middle East. And then they actually want to dominate the world. They have a vision of a worldwide caliphate you know, is people, I hope your listeners will understand that Israel is a kind of laboratory for Middle East terrorists. They always start with us, but they never end with us. Plane hijacking started when they were hijacking Israeli planes. It ended up on 9-11 in New York and Washington and Pennsylvania. It never just stays with us. We're the little Satan. America's the big Satan. The deputy commander of Palestinian Islamic Jihad just yesterday said to, there's a Arabic language newspaper called Al-Mayadeen. And he said, this is a war against the West headed up by Biden. It's not a war against Israel. It has to start with Israel, but this is a war against the West. So I hope your listeners understand what starts 
in Israel. We're not like Las Vegas. It never stays in Las Vegas. It starts in Israel. It will always come to the United States and Europe afterwards. And, you know, you're, you, you point out that uh, Iran's role and, you know, they even call themselves the Axis and they don't call themselves the Axis of evil, but they use the word the Axis. But, you know, the evil is the word right behind it that they, they uh, forgot to uh, add to their conversation. But, you know, um, Iran obviously r runs a lot of the operations with Hamas, with Hezbollah, with Islamic Jihad. And like you said, has that bigger plan. And then they're supported by other bigger players in the world, like the Chinese, communist Chinese and others who uh, Russia, who funds them on some level as well. So that access to evil is a real thing. And like you said, it doesn't have a small plan. It has a huge plan for the whole planet. And that's the world we're living in today. It's not um, it isn't people can ignore it. People can make believe it isn't true, but it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we Americans are are innately nice people and we like to think that everybody is innately nice and that you know the only evil in a the world really is in a james bond movie where there's an evil genius named dr no that really isn't the case we live in a tough world that's gonna that's getting tougher and there are people who have very bad plans in mind for us. And I, this is my American hat when I say us. Uh, they don't wish us well. The, the Chinese communists certainly plan to be the dominant power in the Pacific and uh, we're in their way. And the Russians intend to reestablish the Russian empire and we're in their way. And Putin, um, you know, is following a great tradition of Stalin and uh, is no less cruel in Ukraine to the Ukrainians than uh, the Russians have ever been, which is pretty darn cruel. You know, people, uh, you, you look nowadays and, you know, your American side and you look at uh, what's going on with all the young uh, American students, and I call them uh, white, uh, privileged uh, students who are probably the worst, who have no real experience with real violence of the real world and don't understand and you understand it very um you know six wars you've been in. i you know i grew up in the ghetto of the south bronx and i saw somebody sick a pit bull on somebody and watch that pit bull kill them and not feel anything and you know that evil and that's on a small tiny level one drug dealer killing somebody using a, a an, an animal to do it but I've seen that evil up close and personal. So I know it exists and it's real. And you take it to the political world, then it's even worse and bigger and much more dangerous than one individual, clearly. But a lot of these rich, uh, spoiled students that are going to campuses at Harvard and Yale and all our Ivy Leagues have never been uh, up close with any of uh, uh, evil and violence. They live privileged lives. And so they, it's easy for them to identify with the quote-unquote oppressed that they've created this illusion as to what the oppressed are and not realize what they're really uh, supporting, um, unfortunately, I think. Yeah, I mean, on those campuses, if you are white, you are a supremacist, you are a colonialist, you are a fascist pig oppressor of the masses. If you are a person of color, no matter what atrocities you may have committed in whatever countries you may have come from, you are entitled to commit those atrocities. I mean, right now you will hear 
at Harvard, at Yale, at Princeton, at Columbia University, the slogan, by any means necessary. And they're using that to justify the massacre that just took place. And you can forget about facts having anything to do with anything. And I think the best example of that is this thing that just happened with the hospital in, <clears throat> in Gaza, which was struck by a Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. And I, I, I can you know, tell you on a personal basis what, uh, what the rockets that they use look like on impact. They make a very small indentation when the, when the rocket cone hits before they explode. Uh, it's maybe a foot, foot and a half in diameter max. Uh, it is a shrapnel explosive device. Israel drops 500 palm, pound bombs, and we also can drop JDAMs, which are 1,000 pound bombs. When those bombs hit, um, I guarantee you they will get your attention and they leave a sizable crater. They leave a crater that's, you know, 15 feet across. If it's a JDAM, you're talking about 25, 30 feet across, three or four feet deep. You don't have any doubt when you see a 500 pound bomb impact or a thousand pound bomb impact. So this blast that happened there, the majority of the casualties were people who were burnt to death and you can see all the burned out cars. That's because it was from a rocket that fell short that had a full payload of fuel in it. So that propellant exploded and killed those poor people who were gathered in that hospital. We have video footage from two different sources and no one can say, oh, this was manufactured by, by Israel because one of the videos was shot by Al Jazeera in Gaza. It wasn't the, us that handed it over. It's an Al Jazeera video and you see a rocket take off and then all of a sudden it starts to bank and turn back. And then it seems like there's a malfunction. You can see a, a flash, not an explosion, but like a flash, like the motor flared out on the rocket. And then you see the impact and the, and the blast. But those are facts. They just get in the way of what, what the narrative is. And so you even hear on, on the BBC, which reflects the mindset of the, our elite colleges, they had a guest on who said, it really doesn't matter what the truth is. And I, I just sat there and I'd be hearing that sentence in shock. He said, it just doesn't matter. It, it's irrelevant. There has to be an immediate ceasefire, um, which means, oh, put it to an analogy of the United States. Japan bombs Pearl Harbor. We send over Jimmy Doolittle who bombs Tokyo and the Japanese say, ah, we've got to have an immediate ceasefire. You can't have the battle in Midway after we just took out the Pacific fleet and killed 3,000 Americans. That's not the way war works. You don't get a free first punch, especially not when your objective is genocide, period. I mean, we the days when Jews stood at the side of a pit naked with their hands over their children's eyes waiting to be shot or walked into gas chambers because they were helpless and had no army and had no state and had no one 
who would stand up for them. Those days are over. We've got a state, we've got an army, and we're not going to acquiesce to our own suicide. Not to please anyone, not to please the New York Times, not to please the students at Harvard or Columbia or the BBC or anyone. We just are not going to be nice and die quietly. It's not going to happen. Well, I think, you know, people who, once again, who don't understand, you know, it's just like if someone comes in, you're in a bar and someone comes in and you're with your family and they kill them, you're not supposed to do anything in response because now the person's no longer one and he doesn't want to fight anymore. Nah, let's, you know, let, let, let's forget it. Let, let, it's over. It's over. Let, you know, let's just, you know, make peace. No, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that on a personal level. It doesn't work like that in a war level. When, when somebody has done what they did, you need to eliminate them on every level. And that's what you're suggesting. But one of the biggest things that you're kind of touching on, Dan, and that's part of the hard problem is this propaganda war. And they're very good at the propaganda war. And what you just said, I mean, they may be a masters of it. You know, the ability to take something that happened and immediately turn the press and the world and even a prime minister in Canada to be able to like condemn them for blowing up this hospital and killing 500 kids without even getting the information as to what happened, immediately jumping on a side and choosing that side and blaming people. And then later not retracting the fact that you just, you know, you made that mistake. That's how powerful that propaganda war is, is that no matter what happens, it's going to try to be flipped, turned and used against Israelis as the Israelis try to handle this war going forward. That's just my opinion watching it. But you, I'm sure you got even better insights than I do. That's for sure. Well, you know, Lenin used to call the the uh, the left wing elites in this country useful idiots, and the media, you know. And I'm a child of the left. When I was a kid, you know, a kibbutz is a collective farm. I was pr and very proud that I was in the civil rights marches, and very happy that I was in the civil rights marches. But I was out there singing Pete Seeger songs, and you know. Uh, I considered myself a leftist. Um, I considered myself aligned with people who were oppressed and trying to make the world a better place. I didn't, you know, this is a, the ancient left. I did not see all white people as racists. I did not see capitalism as uh, the evilest force in the world. Um, I, but today you have the media whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post or the BBC or the LA Times, which I'll tell you a story about in a second, rushing, racing to say Palestinian health minister, the Palestinian Ministry of Health uh, today said that it was an Israeli airstrike that killed 500 people within five minutes. Who is the Palestinian Ministry of Health? They're Hamas. So do you think that an organization that just ordered the mass murder of men, women, and children, rape, torture, kidnapping of children, murder of babies in their bed, beheading babies, do you think they would blanch at a, at a, at a stretch of the truth? Do you think they would draw the moral line at lying? That that Oh, I'm sorry. That's a line we won't cross. We're <laughs> not going to lie. Well, I, no one even bothered to question it. No one even bothered to say... There was something got hit here. There was an explosion. It's a war zone. Uh, it is, they call it the fog of war for a reason. It's going to take some time to figure out what happened here. 100%. You know, and when Israel says 
we don't heart target hospitals, I can tell you from my own experience. My last day in service was March 14th, 2018. It was the day that the United States moved the American embassy to Jerusalem. And my unit, the Givati Brigade, which is a very good infantry brigade, was deployed on the Gaza border because Hamas had called for the great march of the return. A hundred thousand Gazans were going to march on the border and just walk through the border fence. Well, it was all BS because they were using that march and they were burning tires to create a smoke screen as a distraction to launch seven terrorist attacks against us that day, seven on that line. And my brigade was there to, and we were reinforced by a, a unit called Yamam, which is a very elite special forces unit. We killed 63 people, I believe, that day. 57 of them, Hamas themselves claimed as Hamas terrorists. They called them Hamas operatives. When our snipers identified a target that was a person that was shooting at us, and we were under small arms fire, grenades, Molotov cocktails. When a sniper identified someone with a weapon who was shooting at us, he had to get on the radio, contact a lieutenant colonel, that was the lowest rank that could give the okay, who was on an observation hill, say where the, the assailant was, where the, where the uh, Hamas sniper was. The lieutenant colonel had to locate that target, see that that target was firing on us, give the okay, and then the sniper could take a shot. Even though we were under fire. And I was furious. I was like, well, what? We need to wait. Can we defend ourselves? Would that be nice? But those were the rules of engagement that we had. So I guarantee you the Israeli army doesn't target hospitals. Shit happens in wars. And sometimes, you know, you can, the bell, the, I think it was the uh, Chinese embassy. It was uh, bombed in, um, in Bosnia during that war by uh, the Americans. And it was a mistake that, that sure. happened. And Israel owns up to it when it makes a mistake like that. But there have been so many of these things which were total BS and and the media eats it up and then never retracts. And you can see the riots going on in the Middle East. They have blood on their hands. Yeah, because the media and that, that them fanning the flames, because that's what they're doing, they're fanning the flames. And I remember you telling me that story uh, about 2018 uh, when you... You were like 70 years old when you had to get a special approval. We were up in Alberta, Canada, making the movie. And you told me about, which I found to be such an amazing, I had literally fascinating story to hear this from you. Because I didn't know this background. I was just, I, I thought, well, you wrote this script and we were, and then all of a sudden we went into your life and your background. And it, uh, it really was amazing to hear some of that experience that you had. Well, I had literally come from the Gaza border got on a plane and flown to Canada to be on the set. It was exactly that time. Amazing. And what a, it must have been, what a difference from that in the middle of a war thing to the experience we had in Canada, which was such a great experience. Mm -hmm. And your story that, you know, led to it, Miracle in East Texas, you know, was, was such a fun, true story movie that you wrote. So here, you know, what a, a, a difference. But you also mentioned, and, and just, you know, to throw real quick, 
you know, you were on the left. I was on the far left. I grew up in a ghetto in the South Bronx. I hung out with the Black Panthers and the Black Muslims. Wow. I marched in Tupelo against the Klan. I became a Maoist leader for 10 years of my life, working with the Chinese communists and supporting the uh, Pol Pot. So I know the left intimately, really intimately. And thank God I'm not lo no longer there. And I've understood what that is and what it isn't. The utopia dream that they promote versus the reality, which is a nightmare. And, um, you know, that's the same with the, the Islamic movements. They promote to their people a utopia, but what they really create is a hell. That's what they create. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we've kind of went on similar type of, you know, uh, on the left piece of it, but, you know, not the... Uh, Obviously, your involvement in the IDF and the war part of it. Going forward, um, Dan, obviously, uh, Israel's plan is to uh, eliminate Hamas as a, a functioning uh, thing. That's the plan they have right now. And uh, obviously, there's going to be a lot of pressure using the propaganda war to try and stop that from going forward. And a lot of their friends may become very weak in the knees as, as, as life goes on. What's your perspective as to what the future holds in the short run for uh, what's going on in the Middle East right now? Yeah, it, the pressure on us to have a ceasefire is already there. Um, it'll only intensify as the ground war starts. My guess is the ground war will start within 24 to 48 hours, I think. I think a political decision's already been made. I think it's now a totally operational decision of the IDF as to when they decide to go. Um, but as we go into Gaza, there's there are going to be more casualties. There's going to be more pressure. But we really don't have a choice. We really don't have a choice because what country on earth would agree to live next to a regime which sends 2,000 murderers across its border uh, we're not talking about the United States and Afghanistan. We're not talking about even about the United States and Germany or, or Japan in World War II. It's as if in Juarez you had ISIS and they just crossed into El Paso and murdered 1,500 people. What would the United States do? Would they say, oh, well, I guess, you know, it's really because they're suffering bad economic conditions and we need to understand them. I guarantee you the United States would go in and occupy northern Mexico and they would wipe every one of the guys who just murdered their people out, period. As they should. Yeah. There is no government on the face of the earth that could tolerate this kind of a thing. Uh, and yet we in Israel are held to a different standard. We're expected. I think the world is very comfortable with dead Jews. I think they. I think the world is comfortable with with Jews in pajamas, you know, being marched into gas chambers. I think they're very uncomfortable with Jews who defend themselves. Uh, they they like to mourn our deaths after the fact and say, "Oh gosh, it was just so terrible." We'll you know we'll watch Schindler's List and we'll feel better about ourselves. And I I just can tell you know I had a friend who was a, Israel's greatest novelist. He was a guy named Amos Oz. He was a very good guy. And he said, you can take any Jew in the world, no matter where he lives, no matter how prosperous and successful he is, no matter what he's attained in his life, and scratch his arm, and just beneath the skin, you'll come to the numbers. 
that's true. That has marked us in our DNA probably for the next thousand years. We all stand at one point or another in our lives in our nightmares at the edge of the pit waiting to be shot in the head. And we all make a decision whether we admit it to ourselves or not as to what we would do in that situation. And Israelis have, as a people, decided uh, we're not going to get to the edge of the pit. We will fight you before we ever get in that situation. And if it means all-out war, it'll be all-out war. And I guarantee we will not do to Gaza what the Allies did to Dresden, which was firebomb it and kill uh, estimates are uh, 200,000 people that were uh, all civilians killed in Dresden. And yet the Allies felt that was necessary to break the will of Nazi Germany. And I don't know that they were wrong, but I can guarantee Israel won't do that. But we will do what we have to do in order to continue to exist as a nation. I think, Dan, uh, unless you have any part in thoughts, I'm going to think I'm going to leave it on this because I think it's too heavy. I, I want to do another show with you about the movie. Um, but I, I don't think now is the time to talk about that. I want to leave it at this because I think what, you're, what you just said is, is powerful. And if you have any other closing thoughts on top of it, I think we'll stay here with this. Yeah, I would just, you know, ask your your viewers, the people who listen to your podcast, to consider what they would do in, in our situation, to consider what they would do. If I can tell you, there's not an Israeli that has not lost a friend, dear friend, or a family member who's either been not been killed, wounded, or taken hostage. It's a small country. And I just was talking to one of my best friends, Doron Almog. Doron Almog is, uh, is a retired major general. And uh, 25 years ago, something like that, he was career army. And he was supposed to be at a family dinner, a reunion dinner in Haifa at a restaurant called Maxime. I, I know that restaurant real well. I used to eat there all the time. It was a nice family restaurant. But he was career army, and as happens when you're career army officer, things come up, and so he was late. Because he was late, he wasn't killed by the suicide bomber who killed seven members of his family, including his parents. Mm. He, in this last massacre, after he lost seven members of his family to a Hamas terrorist, six members of his family were killed in a Kibbutz Kfar Aza. Two parents, their four children, two boys and two girls, all murdered together in their home. And he doesn't live down there, but I, I can, that story repeats itself throughout Israel. There is no one who hasn't been touched by that. So I would ask your viewers to ask themselves what they would do were they in Israel's position. What would they want their government to do were they in Israel's position? If suddenly Mexico said, you stole California from us, and now we're going to take back our rightful land. And the way we're going to do it is by sending in 2,000 people into San Diego to murder everybody you could find. Just ask yourself what, what you would want your country to do in that case. And then spread the word. And I appreciate it.
Appreciate well, you having me on, John. Hey, Dan, thank you so much. You, you know, I just pray for and hope your family uh, in, in Israel is safe and all the people of Israel. And, you know, and, and one can only hope that the evil that is Hamas is eliminated from this planet because they need to be eliminated from this planet. And then in the future, that there may be a time where the people can once again get to a point of peace and, and get back to the humanity that everybody has. But until evil is, is eradicated, that's probably not going to happen. And I think we're all facing some difficult times ahead. Um, so just, uh, you know, my prayers and, and wishes to the people of Israel, to you, your family and everybody, Dan. And once again, thank you. And then we'll we'll come back and, and ha have a lighter uh, day on um, something that you created that, that I would, you know, can't wait to have people see. I would love to. And thank you. And I just leave with this one anecdote. Uh, General Schwarzkopf was asked after 9-11, do you think the American people can ever forgive the people who perpetrated 9-11? And he famously answered, forgiveness is God's business. Our job is to arrange the meeting. <laughs> I think I heard that one. Good way to end it. Thank you, Dan. Uh, all my best. God bless. And, and we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye, John. All right. Bye.